Welcome to the You Lead Podcast, brought to you by the Council for School Leadership of the Alberta Teachers Association. Hello and welcome to the You Lead Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. Today we bring you a session from the Educational Leadership Academy of 2020 with Dr. Lenora Saxinger. ELA was held online this year in response to COVID-19, and throughout the session, you'll hear some references to chat features where participants were able to ask questions. You'll also hear our panel ask some of those questions to Dr. Saxinger. We'll start off this session with Dr. Phil McRae providing an introduction. Uh, Good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Dr. Phil McRae. For those of you who I haven't met, I work at the Alberta Teachers Association as Associate Coordinator of Research, and um, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, to you Dr. Uh, Sackinger, who is an infectious disease doctor at the University of Alberta, um, practicing clinical doctor as well, and is bringing her expertise specifically around infectious disease, but um, around reentry to schools. Um, Lenora has been working as co-chair to the Scientific Advisory Committee for AHS Emergency Response to COVID-19, and um, as such has a kind of a beat or a sense of the latest research from around the world on the public health response to COVID, but also um, uh, is really wise in bringing that balanced evidence-based approach um, to the conversation. So, Lenora, um, we want to welcome you and thank you for taking time on your holidays. Lenora, thank you for joining us and um, we'll turn it over to you and we'll also hopefully have um, some questions from people because, as you've said before, um, trying to be radically transparent around the research and around what we know about COVID-19 and how to respond effectively is the best um, way to go. So we're bringing you directly to uh, our school leaders. Welcome. Thanks for that. Um, so good morning, everybody. I I put together some preliminary thoughts and a bit of a structure because I think really most of this time should be about questions. And some of the thoughts I'll be putting forward, I have some notes that I can either paste into the chat or into the U of a, uh, Q&A so that you can get links for some of the references. I think really have to do with the types of questions that we've been seeing coming up. And um, I think that the whole thing is centered on risk and an assessment of risk and the assessment of risk in schools. Um, and I, I kind of have structured things to talk about the risk of infection and transmission by age and by place, um, particularly because, of course, by age has been a bit of a matter of some debate. And there's a lot of stuff swimming around on social media right now around um, whether or not children are at risk of acquiring infection, severe infection, getting sick and transmitting infection. And those are all very important things. And then other risks like inadequate teaching or development. Um, And then some of the risks in the actual physical built space of schools. So that's kind of where I'm going to go with some really brief introductory remarks. Um, We just completed a really large and frankly, um, kind of dry to read, but lots of information in it report from the scientific advisory group, um, which is a transdisciplinary group that I'm co-chairing with Braden Manns in Calgary. And we've been basically getting asked questions by public health or by um, zone medical leads or by individuals. And if they seem to be a broad interest, we do a, a 
fairly formal literature review um, in a very rapid fashion. We will include preprints, we will include media reports if they're robust, and try to come up with the best current answer in the shortest time frame prop, uh, possible, which is why I have not had a day off since April. So, um, well, today we'll count after this, actually. Um, so the first thing is age um, as a risk for acquisition of infection. It's clear that um, susceptibility to infection does increase with age. And in some population-based antibody studies, we see that kids do have lower infection rates and that it goes up um, as you get older. And in, in the broadest sense, uh, under 19 has much lesser risk of acquiring infection in the setting of a COVID ep epidemic in a community greater than 65 has a much higher risk of acquiring infection. And to go with that, kids are also less likely to have symptomatic disease, which is why they were kind of undercounted during the initial parts of the epidemics worldwide because no one was testing them because they didn't have severe symptoms. Um, and so they were systematically undercounted as well. But um, even with that, they do have less infection. Um, and then the risk of severe infection, severe symptoms, hospitalization, and death are also much higher um, as you go up in age. And given the same exposure to infected household members, so within households even, so one person in the household has infection, in most transmission chains, 90% uh, of the infections in households were introduced by adults, not with, by children. Um, kids under 10 were still less likely to get infection, even though kids under 10 tend to be fairly even the littler ones can be closely applied to their parents, for example. Um, and, the, um, and the infection risk within households actually, I'm just gonna point this out now because it'll come up again later, can be reduced even by taking precautions within a household setting. And I think that's relevant to schools as well because to me, uh, a classroom in a way mimics a household setting in that there's people together in the same space for a more prolonged time. Um, the other thing that I'm going to point out about acquisition is given that adults most commonly introduce infection into a group um, and they're more likely to get symptomatic. Um, I would say that the issues around personal protective equipment, so PPE and um, staff to staff interaction is something that really people have to keep in mind in all of the healthcare worker um, transmissions at work it really looks most common that if people are infected at work, they're more likely infected from a colleague than from a patient in healthcare. And that's been quite, um, quite clear from fairly early on when they do detailed um, work with healthcare in um, outbreaks. And a lot of healthcare workers have been exposed in the community, bring it to work and might spread it to individuals at work. The likelihood that infection is coming from patients to healthcare workers is actually much, much less. And so I think there's some parallels there that we have to remember about teachers, um, break rooms, staff rooms, um, use of PPE when you're with other adults, um, and the ideas of semi-remote work if you might be older or at higher risk. Um, the other thing that I'm going to talk about a little bit is there's been some papers that parents are getting all very head up about, understandably, I think, um, where the viral load in children, um, a lot of the initial data suggested kids might carry less virus. Um, there's other work suggesting that kids' cough dynamics are just less good at spreading stuff as far. Um, and also children have fewer, uh, well, there's ACE receptors 
that line, the tissues of the mouth, nose, and throat that actually are where the virus docks to actually infect, and they have um, fewer of those receptors. And so there's a few biologic reasons that might support why, unlike most other viruses, which kids are very talented at spreading it, it does not seem that they're that talented at spreading COVID. Um, there was a recent paper that was actually in JAMA that suggested that smaller kids have a higher viral load. There are some technical issues with that paper, and I think a lot of people don't necessarily think it overturns everything that's come before. Um, and I can go into the methodologic details, but I think a lot of us are kind of waiting for further study because there's a fairly significant body of work before that that suggested the viral load is the same or less. And there's some technical issues with the way that they did their study um, that were a bit of a concern to a number of people. So I think we're on the fence about the viral load, but at the end of the day, I don't care about the viral load so much as I care about the evidence of transmission. So it's, it's a, a factor in transmission, but it's not the only factor. And the other observation I wanted to make that kind of riffs off what we're seeing in the, in the media and in parent concerns is um, very highly publicized incidences of high rates of infection amongst youth. So there's the high school in Israel outbreak that started, they went back to school May 18th. Um, May 19th, it started with a heat wave. Um, they opened up school quite broadly without really any particular precautions of note except for masking, um, which sounds kind of familiar. Um, but one issue was with the heat wave, apparently they waived the mask requirement. And there was tremendous mixing of kids um, in those cohorts and um, particularly in a kind of tween boy age range. Um, before and after school, transport to school, um, in school spaces. And so there's a lot of mixing. It wasn't a cohorted scenario. And someone was very infectious, it seems, because there was quite a high rate of infection within that school. Um, there's also a super spreader event in a high school in France, which got a lot of press. So if people bring that one up, um, we did look at that in some detail. It was an antibody study. And I'm just going to point out that there's 45,000 schools in France. Um, and that an outbreak in one school and a super spreader event in one school should not make us assume that that's the normal. It tells us that that is possible. It doesn't tell us whether it's probable. And I think we have to study those events to try to figure out how best to prevent them. But um, we should also look at the context that um, events are reported in. So a lot of people are pointing to increasing, um, increasing reports from the U.S. Um, that are of concern where they have... Um, have been documenting, you know, school-based outbreaks, closing schools for deep cleaning. We can talk about that too, um, and the like. But a lot of those schools are in places that are currently having explosive epidemics. And based on our review, schools are much more likely to mirror what's happening in the community rather than amplify it. And I think that's important because we're not going to be able to tell people, we're not going to be able to tell, you know, our colleagues, our teachers, um, our staff, and our parents that school is going to be zero risk. But really the risk that you're looking at should be mirroring the risk in the community. Um, another thing that I think I'm going to point out about the community rates is that when we look at cutoffs that are under discussion for what is low transmission in the community, everyone's kind of really saying, well, we need to have low community transmission. Um, some of the references that are coming forward are talking about less than one case per 100,000 is described as low. Um, and other guidelines, I think the CDC is saying less than 5% positivity of tests and less than 10 cases per 100,000 population is described as moderate. Um, looking at current 
his own data, which I was just pulling before I came to join you here. Um, the new case rates over the last full week of data reporting were in the realm of between one to two cases per 100,000, which would be just above what they're calling low um, in the one reference. But our percent positivity across places is actually much, much lower. Our percent positivity in most places is 1% or so. So we're kind of falling in the general realm of low currently based on these different cutoffs. And I know that public health is trying to discuss what they will use as the, the index. And I think that I would hesitate to say there should only be one index because one of, the, one of the problems is that if you have an outbreak in a small zone that's affecting a particular population, um, you would find very high numbers, but that actually might not reflect the risk in the general community. It might not reflect the risk in the school. So we do actually have to remain cognizant. I'm trying to get into the lighting here. I'm cognizant of, um, of the, uh, the circumstances in a zone might make a big difference in terms of what the actual risk is. So we should use the numbers as guidance, but we shouldn't use them as the only thing. And I know that public health is going to be investigating all school-based cases, and they'll be able to help make that determination. Um, the other thing I'm just going to mention is that Right now, we're doing a lot of asymptomatic testing, um, and I know that the government is talking about increasing testing with particular attention to easy access for testing for purposes of investigating school, um, either surveillance or investigation, I'm not sure which. And so that's something that's under a lot of active discussion about how to do that, like how to expand the capacity. But I think that that will be one of the tools that is at our disposal when we're trying to figure out um, whether there's a problem in schools or not. Um, when I'm looking at the other data that people look at sometimes is they like the R estimate, the reproductive number, to be low. Um, and the R across Alberta right now ranges from 0.7 to 1.1. So it really does average out to be about, on average, one case will beget one case, which means that it's not likely to be in a situation of rapid spread across the entire province, but there will be places where there's higher transmission, obviously. Um, another comment I want to make about risk by place is that schools that have predominantly lower income communities um, often would be the ones that would be more crowded, um, maybe lesser staffed, maybe have a more difficult physical infrastructure in terms of ventilation and such. And a lot of the families that attend those schools would be people who are classed as <clears throat> essential workers who are really often the poorly paid people who have multiple jobs. And um, that would be a very vulnerable population. And so I think that the, the place you are also makes a difference in terms of assessing risk and a threshold for what to do if there's starting to be cases in, in a school setting. Um, and then I'm just going to move on to two more things and open it up for questions. I'm not watching the questions right now, but I will come back to them. Um, I think that the other risk that we have to look at is the risk of inadequate um, schooling, basically teaching and development. Um, a lot of the reports that have come forward are really putting schools forward as being, if we're going to commit to something being safe, we should be committing to schools and we should be shutting down non-essential indoor spaces and recreational spaces first. I would actually agree with that. Um, for younger kids especially, the idea of physical distancing and sitting quietly in a desk facing forward becomes very unclear. A lot of jurisdictions have actually basically said we're not even trying that at less than 10 to 12 years old anyway. 
um, because you can't enforce distancing in that set in that setting. <clears throat> and I think it would be hard to enforce distancing and teach at the same time. Um, the other issue that we talk about is masks for kids and masks for teachers. Um, some of the concerns that have been raised is that effective masks on communication, especially for English as a second language learner, or kids who really need the emotional kind of expressive context to understand, so younger kids particularly, is, is not well documented. And I think it's something that we, we can't forget about and just slapping a mask on. It might not be the best thing to do. The, um, the mask mandates in some communities, I think, have kind of swayed the decision around masking in schools because it becomes hard to say it should be different. But those decisions weren't made by public health and aren't based on public health usual decision-making uh, criteria and data. And the current evidence for masking, I think, is still somewhat equivocal as to how much it might add and how important it is in the, in the hierarchy of controls. So uh, I, I think that the mask mandate is something that we should just take a scholarly approach to and be able to, to try to justify what we should do for the rest of the pandemic based on what we learn as we go through this process. Um, and then the final thing I want to touch on a little, two more things I want to touch on. One of them is class size and cohorts. I actually try to think of those two things as being different um, because to me, the concept of cohort when we do it in hospital or anywhere else is that we define the group of contacts. And so if there is a positive case in a setting, um, if the cohort has been strong and has not been blending all over the place, you have a smaller group of people to go through and do symptom screening, um, arrange testing, um, counsel regarding, you know, um, monitoring, clinical monitoring, self-monitoring. Um, and, and it makes it a lot more containable. Whether that group is 15 or 30, probably it makes some difference, but not that much difference. It's still useful to have cohorts, even if you are not changing class sizes, just for that reason. And it limits the possibility of a super spreader event. Um, so super spreader events um, are, are rare. Most people with COVID do not transmit to anyone else. And then occasional people transmit to many other people. And so that's why we see this funny disconnect between the data overall and the case reports where we see big outbreaks in schools. Um, so a cohort is still a valuable thing. And so thinking about where people blend and minimizing that, um, where they eat lunch, um, when they come in, uh, thinking about buses will be a nightmare, but important, um, are all very important. And then the class size piece, I think, really riffs off the concept of physical distancing as one of our core measures. And obviously, if you have a very large number of kids in a class, it's going to become very impossible, essentially, to maintain distancing. I think that there's an argument to be made that distancing is less important in younger ages for biologic reasons and also because it's impossible. Um, but for older groups, especially when you're getting up into teens, um, late middle school, I think that it becomes something that really has to be on the table for discussion and that resources for that have to be discussed as well. Um, other things that have come up are the cleaning. How important is the cleaning? We've never seen really clear evidence that deep cleaning makes a difference. In some ways, it's just kind of pandemic theater, like look at us, we're deep cleaning. Um, I think that you know doorknobs, light switches, high touch surfaces, shared surfaces should be wiped down with uh, virucidal agents. Um, at least once a day, and people should use hand hygiene scheduled and frequently. And that actually makes probably the biggest difference of all, honestly. Um, the final thing would be the idea of the HVAC systems and HEPA filters. 
In the Israeli outbreak, one thing that struck me is that during this period of heat wave, just after they went back to school, they had fairly crowded classrooms, but they would close the door and run an individual air conditioning unit in the classroom. There have been restaurant-based outbreaks that kind of suggest that that kind of cool airflow can actually extend to droplet spread farther than it usually would go. Um, and so some thought about the heating, ventilation, air conditioning is, is, I think, important. We have a document on our website, and there's other national and international guidelines. But I think the building's maintenance people should be doing a walkthrough and thinking about maximizing the fraction of air from the outside um, and thinking about humidity and other things that can be modified. Um, there's also been some buzz lately about HEPA filtration in classrooms. I will just comment that in there was a real big vote for doing that in operating rooms to reduce um, risk of surgical site infections. And the literature came out as a complete hodgepodge because in some cases it seemed to worsen infection rates. And so just because the filters might be drawing air in different directions, I think that I would be cautious about adopting them as a for sure good thing. Um, and so I would be kind of arm's length and wanting someone to produce some data before saying that that is something that we should be advocating for without thinking about um, school screening is important. At the moment, I think the suggestion is that parents are asked to do this voluntarily on the way in. I'm not sure if there's plans to make the documentation formal. I kind of think it would be more useful to make the documentation of that formal um, because it's very easy for people to get a little bit too laid back about that process if they're not kind of held to it in any way. Um, temperature screening is might be a bit of theater as well. In little kids, it might be more useful, but in adults, it doesn't appear to add much at any kind of level in any of the literature that we've reviewed. Um, <clears throat> so that's a bit of a question mark for me. And then the final thing I think we're getting um, a lot of questions about, and I'm not directly involved in this, but I'm peripherally involved in, in some of the information behind it, is the how are they going to identify outbreaks at a school and what is going to happen? Are you going to have a case in a school and everything shuts down, which becomes unmanageable for everybody? Um, or how are they going to negotiate that space of, you know, if you've been theoretically potentially in contact and have no symptoms, what's going to happen? Um, so based on drafts from various jurisdictions and from acute care, where we've just been going through this again, I'm thinking that what we're going to see, and we can see if this is true, is that people who just have some of the core symptoms, so let cough, short of breath, runny nose, sore throat fever, um, which are very, very common in kids. Sometimes can be hard to differentiate from allergies and asthma, um, but if there's a change in them, it's important. Would be asked to self-isolate and testing would be arranged. That would not necessarily result in any other activity aside from being aware that someone is being tested. I'm just going to remind you that currently testing of people with symptoms in Alberta gives us a 2.8% rate of COVID. So 97% of the time, those symptoms are not COVID in Alberta right now. So that's important to remember. Um, if someone is in close contact with a COVID case, the last time I saw that particular data pulled apart, um, four to 5% of people would test positive. If they were, if they had symptoms and they were contact with a known positive, the rate goes up to four to 5%, but that's still 95% without COVID. So there's still lots of other stuff causing these symptoms. Um, I believe and what we're doing in acute care right now is that if there's one documented case, it would be some kind of an alert yellow flag type situation where there would be enhanced monitoring for symptoms and enhanced testing. Um, 
and it might affect the cohort in terms of of whether or not the close contacts need to be quarantined before testing or not. I think it might depend on the type of exposure. And so there will always be an investigation of a COVID positive. Um, it may matter less in some ways, but I think that if there's in acute care, we've making, we're making it so there's, if there's two cases in one ward or unit um, within one incubation period, or if two cases are clearly linked, it is called an outbreak. And the public health um, standard is that if there's five or more cases um, in any site, it's a publicly declared outbreak. So it's listed as an outbreak on the website. I think that the decision of whether a class or a cohort, or if a kid is in multiple cohort, it's like if they're in a busing cohort and a, and a class cohort, for example, um, or would have to be closed and isolated would depend on the investigation and the type of symptoms that the person who's positive had because people who have more symptoms, especially for example, if they have a productive cough um, or a fever, it seems like they're more likely to transmit. If they have very minimal symptoms, they might be less likely to transmit. So I think there's gonna be some gray zone there and I'll be looking for what public health actually comes forward with for their, for their um, guidance around that. And then the final thing I wanted to make sure I mentioned was so let's say there's a case in a class. What is the risk to the rest of the class? Well, leaving aside the terrible outbreaks that are in the media, like the cabins where they had 15 kids in honestly in a small unventilated space, at least the cabins I've been are usually tend to be a box of sweaty air. Um, that is the worst case scenario when they had like 50% of the kids in those settings would get infected. In a normal household, one in 10 household members get, gets infected. Spouses sharing a bed, one in four spouse gets infected, not 100%. And so even within a class outbreak, we wouldn't necessarily expect really, really huge transmission within a school setting. And so close monitoring during, during the period of you know, 14 days from the exposure is very, very important to identify cases early and then be able to trace and test and quarantine contacts. But it, it really is not like a, a done deal. If there's a case in the school, that does not necessarily mean there's been transmission in the school. Some of the uh, things that we reviewed for our report were cases where an infected child actually had, I'm not even kidding, because they went to like a class fair and all this other stuff. What they listed as over a thousand contacts with no transmission. So don't panic is my final thing on that if there's a case in the school. So I'm going to stop there and then we can go back to the questions. I'm still trying to get better lighting here. Holy smokes. Here, this is better. Okay. And so Dr. Sexinger, I want to thank you for um, spending time on your holidays and, uh, and really giving the latest information that you are coming across to our colleagues who are school leaders across Alberta. Um, I think, you know, when you talk about uh, risk and the both perception and realities of the risk that we're facing with re-entry. Um, that's really important. There is a lot of fear out there. Uh, we've done several different uh, research studies as well as town halls that you've been part of and you know we can feel the palpable sense of, uh, of how will this re-entry look in particular. Um, so thank you so much for that. I know we have several questions and I want to let um, the majority of the time be used for a response to those. Um, and also just a, a note on where we're sitting with the outbreak plan and informing um, 
you know, how this will be dealt with in schools. I think that's going to be very critical to have teacher and school leader perspectives um, into because of the nuances of elementary schools and rural schools and urban settings, um, whether parents will come and pick up children that are, are pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic or symptomatic. Um, you know, there's a, there's a whole range of questions of what this will look like. And as we quickly approach um, September, I know that uh, um, more details will follow from our Chief Medical Officer of Health. Um, but I, with that, I just want to thank you, Lenora, for taking the time and uh, turn it over to Jeff, who will manage some of the questions, because I know we have several and we'll uh, let it go from there. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Lenora, so much. Um, there are many questions. I know some were pre-sent to you, but uh, we've got seven in the Q&A and a number on the side. So I'll let uh, our panelists join in either posing their own questions or sharing questions from the audience. But I'll pose one first. Um, I follow carefully uh, worldwide some of the systems that have already opened up. Australia never really closed down. They closed down for three weeks or so because they're in the middle of their school year. But one of the patterns we've seen is uh, in those systems that opened or remained open is an infection in a school, spreads to three or four students or staff, and then suddenly the school's closed for three weeks, and then that pattern seems to have been replicated in the same city or, pro or state with another school closing and another, and finally it reaches a point like it did in Melbourne recently where the entire state said, you know what, we're going back into lockdown. So do you see that as a possibility or probability for the fall in Alberta that we'll see outbreaks in uh, local epidemics in schools and then school closures, that kind of thing as a probability or possibility? I think um, it'll be interesting to see if they publish some data from those because the a lot of places, I, I, there's some European jurisdictions that I really love for just being so practical. And Netherlands, and I know people have had a flap about Sweden, but Sweden, Finland, um, and Norway, they, they provide great comparative data. I mean, they have some similarities to our system, but probably more optimal class, class sizes. I think that a lot will depend on what we find with the declaration of an outbreak in a school. I think that using external pressures to close a school doesn't make sense. Using epidemiology to close a school makes sense. If you have strong cohorts um, so that the, the, like you might close a class or a cohort, the need to close a school should be something that you can minimize. And I think it should be avoided because frankly, it's incredibly disruptive to children, society, teachers, everybody, it's much better to try to make a system that's sustainable and kind of modular so that if you're closing things down, you're not closing down the whole works. And if you're closing the school, to me, that should be in response to community epidemic transmission, um, because that's probably what's being reflected in the school, honestly. So um, I, I actually think that I would be one to very strongly advocate for shutting down gyms and bars and restaurants before I'd shut down a school. Because what are we trying to do? I mean, the risks of having kids out of school, especially kids from, you know, backgrounds that are more vulnerable, whose parents are not going to be able to afford to hire an off, uh, like a fired EA um, to help them with homeschooling. Um, these disparities are going to increase um, and not decrease. And they will actually put at-risk areas of our communities at higher risk. And those at-risk areas of the community that are at higher risk, where we have ongoing problems with outbreaks, um, at least in some of our larger outbreaks in Alberta, we're very much around, you know, people who have multiple jobs, live in multi-generational homes, um, and aren't able to afford a lot of extra resources for their kids. 
that's what actually is going to bring our whole community cycle back um, if we are not careful. So um, looking at the Sweden and Finland experience is in our report, but just briefly, Sweden didn't close. They had distancing, like they had kind of like a good faith distancing policy. They stopped school for 16 plus year olds, but left everything else running exactly as usual. Um, they do not do as much testing there. They were only testing people who were very ill. So there was relative under testing. But when you looked at the hospitalization rates in their pediatric populations, it was the same as in Finland where they actually closed everything. So that was kind of pretty robust, but ecologic evidence that schools are not necessarily the problem. Um, because even in a setting where they had a really severe epidemic and high death rates um, in, in older people especially, and they didn't close schools, the schools were not really a big problem in, in Sweden. The other thing that I actually meant to mention and I didn't is that the other nice thing about those data sets is that they have population-based, profession-based infection data. So you'd say, well, what about the infection rate in teachers? Teachers can sometimes be older. They might be at more risk of symptomatic infection, so they'd be more likely to be tested. So we wouldn't necessarily miss as many cases in teachers, and we certainly wouldn't miss severe cases in teachers. Their relative risk of infection in um, Sweden, and it was they broke it out by all these different levels that I didn't understand in Swedish, but everyone classed as an educator from very young kids up through technical schools, I think. The relative risk was 0.7 to 1.1. Most of it was 0.9 or 1. So the risk in teachers was exactly the same as the risk of everyone in Sweden. The risk in cab drivers was 4.5 times higher than the general population. So it didn't look like the schools were the problem there. And so I think that we'd be looking to what's going on in the community more. Um, and I think that that teacher data is important because I think teachers... I mean, everyone's feeling attacked for different ways in medicine and in nursing and in teaching. But I think that um, that that data is important for me to think about, too, in terms of what do you have to do for your own safety? And it tells me that, to a large extent, doing the basics well is important. And so the hand washing, um, distancing from other adults, especially in terms of shared airspace and face-to-face -face time. And then masks for teachers, I think, make a lot of sense when you can. Um, and possibly if you have any kind of medical conditions, you'd want to take higher precautions in that setting or consider being someone who facilitates distance learning more. So there's a lot of different considerations there, but, um, but that's important. And the other thing, of course, is depth of field. If you have a situation where you're a close contact um, and I'm not sure what they would do in terms of, I think they're going to try to facilitate testing but I'm not sure what they would do if you have to if you have to self-isolate after a contact, depending on the type of contact. Some contacts you might not have to. If you have to self-isolate, obviously there has to be a way to keep the system running. And some depth of field in terms of sick leave and substitutes and um, that kind of stuff is going to be very important in planning. And I'm, I'm, I think the outbreak plan is supposed to be ready this week, and that will help people get an idea a little bit more of what that might look like. I took too long on that. We have a lot of questions, so I'll, I'll go shorter next story. Um, should I go through some of the questions that are in this chat that are quick, just to make, to nab them? You know what, Dr. Saxinger, I think I can probably sum, uh, sum of them up because many are around the same themes. And a lot of them be about best practices around the in-school process for teachers. So questions like, should we open the door? Should we not open the door? Should we have fans on? Should we not? What are some practices around going to the bathroom and stuff like that? Do you have any quick tips or, or more general tips about, hey, um, when you're going into a class, here are some things to think about 
in terms of air circulation and ventilation and best practices generally? Okay, so starting with the air thing, um, having a greater fraction of exterior air is usually better and higher air exchanges is usually better. Um, so if it's a system that's closed and it's not an open window kind of school, you'd want to have your people maximize the amount of external air that comes in, which is less energy efficient, but I'm sorry, this is a pandemic. Um, and also um, maximize the amount of air exchanges in the room. Um, one thing to think about is if you're using kind of local devices in the room, um, the direction of airflow could be a detriment. So if you're blowing air that happens to go from an infected person who does not yet realize they're infected across other people, it could extend their potential kind of risk range in terms of transmission. And so, um, so I, I tend to I hate to say it, but I, I would actually tend to not necessarily want to have fans blowing across groups of people. Someone was talking about, you know, when maybe we should be getting more fans for kids to improve air exchanges. And I think until there's better data, um, I wouldn't necessarily do that. But a kid having an individual fan that basically takes air from across them only mostly or from above, for example, might, might make more sense to me. Overhead fans seem potentially safer than blowing across fans. Um, if you're in a space where windows can be open, that's good. If you're in a space where <clears throat> if kids are going to, older kids are going to be wearing masks all day, um, one principle, if they can't distance, which in some places will be a lot of places, um, in principle, having some mask-free time, I think, is very important. As a healthcare worker, I value that time. Um, we've been masking in, in hospital spaces since I can't remember what month, but frankly, Communication is hard. I have colleagues I can't even understand when they're wearing a mask because they have accents. It's embarrassing as heck. I never realized before how much I relied on other cues. Um, but mask-free time in larger spaces where you can distance as part of the schedule would be a good idea. And mask-free time outside would be a great idea. So if you can do something outside, do it outside. That's brilliant. Um, humidity. It is thought that lower humidity lets the kind of lets droplets stay in the air longer. Um, and so dry winter conditions are usually felt to be bad. Having said that, in some of the outbreaks in a higher hum humidity, cold environment, like with air circulating air conditioning or in the meatpacking plants, the virus doesn't seem to mind humidity that much. Um, but maximizing humidity in the winter might be something that could be useful. Um, and for staff meetings, even, I mean, and even for older kids, Looking at virtual tools to just reduce the amount of face-to-face -face time and shared airspace is not a bad idea. So some schools I know in Ontario are looking at a study hall method where the kids go to school physically, which is important because some parents can't like be at home to keep their kids on track. And you have an assigned study hall method where the older kids are in a class but and their space as much as they can be. And they have someone there who's kind of supervising them, but they're actually working on different things at the same time. And even if you're in the same building, considering using virtual meetings um, for teachers over in-person meetings where possible makes sense to me. Um, other principles um, for things like cleaning, the high-touch surfaces I think should get wiped down and you can use, like honestly, I use a tablespoon of bleach in a spray bottle, 750 uh, spray bottle of water. And that is good for virus, that's fine. It doesn't have to be fancy. Um, and it's the high-touch surfaces, and no one's ever shown that fomites are super important, although I know people went kind of crazy about that, about packages and things, but the amount of actual virus in real human secretions is much, much less than was tested on those various surfaces, um, and so I don't consider that highly plausible route. 
And at the end of the day, if you're worried about surfaces, the best thing to do is wash your hands. And so if you're going to pick one thing, it would be hand washing on entry, on exit, and at scheduled times throughout the day, often around meals or around going to the bathroom. Some questions around going to the bathroom. I think if you can leave doors propped open and maintain privacy, so you not, not as many people are touching doors in any space that's possible, that makes sense to me. Um, and I would count faucets and things as high-touch surfaces, and I would try to make sure that the bathroom itself does not become crowded. If there's a lineup for the bathroom, because you have a limit on how many can go in, that people be spaced down the hallway with marks on the floor, um, just to avoid clustering. So just try to avoid that cluster. Some places are looking at having kids bring everything into the room rather than going to their lockers because of locker clusters. Other things you might do is you might consider assigning lockers um, so that classes aren't clustered together. They're actually separated. So when a class goes to their locker, they're spread out down the hallway instead of all in one block. Um, there's a lot of things like that where you just kind of have to do a mental walk through the space and say, when do we see people clustered and how can we try to minimize that clustering? Um, in terms of the other thing that comes up is personal items. Um, during the long, dark nights of the school that all the healthcare workers had where we were all getting our wills written um, when we were getting the news from what was going on in Italy and stuff, people really did, I think, manifest anxiety by cleaning, like, and, you know, coming home and stripping in the garage and going to the house and showering before seeing their family. I think that actually has not proven to be an issue. I've not found any cases of transmission from an individual coming from a workplace into a home um, and transmitting it to their family without them, they themselves becoming ill first. And when you yourself become ill, there's quite a few studies showing that people are most infectious very early on. But upon onset of symptoms, if you actually wear a mask in your own house and wash your hands and try to avoid shared airspace, you can minimize risk to family members. And one study that made a tremendous difference, like the attack rate was zero in households where people masked um, while they were, when they realized they were ill versus 14% in households where they didn't. Um, so that makes a big difference too. So I, I think... It's easy to say don't worry, but I think that that should not be a huge focus of concern and it shouldn't be a lot of resources used to address that concern. I do wipe down my phone a lot and my pager because things I touch a lot. So I wash my hands a lot. I wipe down my phone. I wipe down my pager. Occasionally I swipe down the high touch surfaces of my car. Um, and that's about it and for, for my personal kind of, and I'm seeing COVID patients. That was a bit of a riff. Did I hit some of the questions that we got? Absolutely. It looks like you hit a lot of them. You mentioned one thing uh, and that came up a few times and Armand maybe you want to um, expand on this was you know part of the other uh, uh, bit about health and well-being is the mental health piece of this and um, I know that you know your your background is really around infectious disease and, and, and everything like that but might you be able to speak to a little bit of that larger idea of health and how we might be able to protect the well-being and the mental well-being of our staff and of our students and uh, as we return and and I know that we've mentioned a few times reducing and managing anxiety around that yeah I think for I mean for staff one of the things I found in healthcare was just really transparency and clarity about what's going on we actually ended up our workplace health and safety team ended up making a dashboard we report all healthcare workers testing and positivity rates, and whether it was attributed to in or out of hospital contacts, because they do a really, really like rigorous investigation of all the contacts. And um, so far, the actual rate of healthcare workers getting infected in 
hospitals, even with the misericordia outbreak, which was mostly <sighs> staff staff, because um, people let down their guard, like they're all being all perfect with patients, as I think teachers will be probably in the classroom setting. But then you let down your guard when you're when you're taking a break. Um, that turns out to be a difficult thing. So we have to make habits around that. But the rate of infection in healthcare workers is actually less than the rate of infection in the general population in Alberta right now with precautions. And so I think if teachers are are given information and they are given the best current advice regarding precautions, um, and they are, and we are actually very transparent about what's going on so people don't feel like anything's being hidden, that helps. And having some mastery helps, like having a hand in helping make the plan would help, and I think that's been a challenge. But on a school basis, I think that that can help too. Um, the, um, and I think that the other thing is you kind of settle down into a new normal and what people need to think about is, of, out of all these precautions, which ones are the most important that we have to keep as core precautions? And some people might actually then choose to layer other additional, maybe this will help precautions on top of it. And those ones, I think, become diminishing returns and they become not sustainable. So I think that it's really important to say, we're going to have a baseline where we really hold these things to be the most important precautions in a school or for an individual. And this is like where we're really going to stick. And then there might be some play around other things that can be added as we're figuring out what's okay. And for individuals in terms of their own practices, they might choose to add other things, but people shouldn't be shamed or stigmatized for either being more or less careful um, above what we think is like the core, core things we need to do. And people really have to think about what's sustainable and how to make this workable because it could be a really long haul. I mean, and there's not going to be a zero risk scenario. We're always going to be reacting to changes in epidemiology and changes in knowledge. And so the only thing that we can really rely on is that we're probably going to have to change our plan. So focusing on processes that work and ways to make those changes sensibly. And I actually think really, if I were in your position right now, I would be looking at how can we actually track our own activities and how can we actually contribute to knowledge about what seems to be working? Because there's a lot of pandemic left for us to do this and applying everything and doing everything all the time is not necessarily going to be the best way out doing the smartest, most strategic things might be the best way out. Um, and I think that uh, some of the other stuff that I just saw and I kind of forgot. Oh, the masks in classroom. <sighs> Cloth masks are a very varied intervention. And one of the reasons that we haven't seen public health bringing in mask mandates all over the place is because there's actually no direct evidence that they help. Um, there's lots of indirect evidence that they should help. There's randomized controlled um, studies in community settings in influenza where they used actually very high quality medical grade masks that did not show a benefit to reducing influenza transmission. Um, so that's why it's not become part of the standard playbook in pandemics to date. This is a different virus. Um, it's much more aggressive than influenza. Um, there's no pre-existing immunity, so it's ripping through the world in this incredible pace. But the principles of transmission remain somewhat similar. And so I think um, people are kind of latching onto masks in a very polarized and politicized way. I'm just being very Spock about this. I'm waiting for the weight of the evidence before I say that I would support a mask mandate. But if communities are doing a mask mandate, it becomes hard not to do them in a school setting. It actually becomes like kind of ridiculous. And the fact is there's some plausible reasons to think they may help. The degree to which they help above other measures, for example, or if they can substitute for other measures, which is the thing that scares me, is a concern because if people are using masks instead of distancing and hand washing, it could actually backfire. 
Um, however, in high school settings, um, I, I think that if you're in a fairly crowded class, um, leaving a mask on is not a terrible thing. If you're in a class that's reasonably well-spaced and people are sitting and they're facing forward, not facing each other and not interacting a lot, which seems unlikely, um, having some mask-free time is okay. And actually remember that this is a gradient. Um, so you can try to do things that are logical and reasonable, but maintain um, the principles are face-to-face -face shared airspace for 15 minutes is actually more of a risk. So does that mean that you're going to have to, you know, keep masks on for the entire class and people are getting grumpy and they can't understand and they're not communicating and it's bad. Well, maybe you can have a brief mask break where people are actually committed to staying and not getting into each other's faces too much. So I think there has to be some play based on the principles we know. We're going to have to update the principles as we learn more. Um, there's been some stuff about tech, like blue light technology. I think that you might be talking about UBC. There is a lot of companies that are trying to put forward things that might add, like the HEPA filter people are going a little bit crazy right now. Um, the blue light technology that I'm aware of that would be relevant in a single room um, actually sucks air into a ceiling-mounted doodad and does the UVC in the doodad. The circulation of the air is a question, and the fact that there's no actual data, even in like units of um, where immunocompromised people, like bone marrow transplant units, have been interested in this kind of thing, and we've not seen anything really stellar one way or another. I would hesitate to place uh, relatively untested techno innovations over doing things like cohorting and trying to space people apart. And, you know, can you co-opt other spaces to space them farther? Should there be resources for that? Those are really important questions, and I think that those would be my priority. Great. Um, we've reached the end of our time. Um, so, uh, Dr. Saxinger, thank you so much. I know that uh, your time uh, is, there, there are more things to do than there are hours in the day for you and that you've been spending too many hours in the day doing these kinds of things, but we appreciate it.